If you have joined us for previous tales, welcome back. If this is your first time at the Plinth, we welcome you with open arms. We invite you to enjoy Tales from the Plinth podcast, where we will navigate the physical therapy profession and all avenues it includes. Through in-depth interviews and testimonies from licensed physical therapists across the nation, you will leave the Plinth with a better appreciation for clinical practice and the inspiration to write your own tales. May you learn, laugh, and listen. With Tales from the Plinth. Hello and welcome back Tales from the Plinth viewers. Today, we are so excited to welcome Andrew Carlin to the podcast for this week's episode. Andrew is a physical therapist for Asheville Medical Center in Ohio, and he practices mainly in the outpatient orthopedic setting, but he also flexes over to the inpatient rehab setting as well. Additionally, he was named Gannon's 2021 Clinical Instructor of the Year. So without further ado, Andrew, would you like to maybe start us off by giving just a brief overview of your journey through PT school and uh, kind of just what brought you into this position that you're in now. Uh, well, thank you guys for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, so I went to Gannon for my undergrad, graduated in 2011 with a bachelor's in science, and then uh, went right into the DPT program. I graduated in 2014. Um, I Following uh, graduating, I uh, started at Asheville County Medical Center, where I still am to this day. Uh, when I started there, I actually split my time almost 50-50. So I was, uh, if I can remember, Monday through Thursday, I was in the hospital in the morning, outpatient in the afternoon, and then Friday it flipped. Friday, I was in the outpatient in the morning and hospital in the afternoon. So kind of a, you know, never really knew where I was going to be or you know, anything like that it was very difficult to try to orient to it. Um, I also did aquatic therapy at that point. So Tuesday and Thursdays, I was in a completely separate location doing aquatics. Um, I've worked for a number of the local nursing homes in Ashtabula, Ohio, um, I think three or four different ones. Um, and then I also do uh, PRN work for UPMC Hammett, um, which is strictly inpatient. Um, so quite a, quite a, diverse uh, setting background. The only thing I've never really done is home health. I'm not really quite as interested in home health. I never had a rotation in it, never had much experience in it. So that's really the only setting I've never worked in or had any exposure in. So Andrew, you just said that you continually switch between different settings of the profession. And mm -hmm. with each of those settings comes a different demand. Um, how do you balance a continuous switch from the inpatient setting to the outpatient setting? How do you manage that switch? So I, I think I, I truly probably look at myself as an outpatient therapist. Um, at this point uh, in my career, the, the bulk of my time is spent in outpatient. Um, you know, I float over to the hospital, you know, as needed throughout the week. Um, you know, I work the occasional Saturdays there. Um, and then obviously my time um, with Hammett is all inpatient. But I think the nice thing about, um, working as an outpatient PT is those skills are so transferable to any other setting. Um, you know, I've, I've met some fantastic inpatient therapists, some fantastic therapists that work in skilled nursing facilities. Um, but I feel like those skills are a little harder to transfer to the outpatient setting. So being predominantly in an outpatient setting, I feel like it's a little easier for me to kind of jump into those other worlds. Um, you know, I, I, 
probably still approach my inpatient or my, my skilled nursing patients um, with a slightly outpatient perspective. I think the nice thing about it is it gives me the opportunity to maybe push them a little bit more than, um, you know, we sometimes do. Uh, I've, I've never really been overly conservative when it comes to treating patients. Um, I had a CI one time that said that we probably underserve a lot of our neuro patients. You know, these, these people aren't broken. We, we need to push them. You know, they, they can probably do a lot more than we're giving them to do. So I, I look at that, um, you know, my inpatient, my skilled nursing patients the same way, you know, we can push them to do more. And I think having that outpatient experience is, is what gives me that opportunity to, to really kind of challenge the patients. So you would, so you would say that just in the inpatient and kind of skilled nursing setting, what you see is a lot of underdosing going on. Like, do you like, like, so is that a common thing that you see with a lot of other therapists? Um, that's probably a good way to put it. Um, and that's, again, that's not to say that there aren't fantastic inpatient therapists and fantastic, um, skilled nursing patient or skilled nursing therapists. But yeah, I think we can, we can probably push these individuals a lot more than we do. Um, you know, and that's not to say that you should have your, you know, 85 year old dementia patient doing, you know, single leg hop tests and, and, you know, running on the treadmill, but, you know, a lot of times we'll default to maybe having them do like seated exercises and stuff like that. And um, I think pushing them to a more functional activity, standing stuff, balance stuff, um, I think we could probably serve them maybe a little bit better. I absolutely agree. And I think that is one thing that a majority of our professors have emphasized throughout our time at PT school is do not underdose. Don't underestimate your patients of any type of condition because that is just doing a disservice. So that is a huge takeaway. And that's interesting that you've seen that and trying to work against that as well. Um, you mentioned that you did a background in outpatient, you did skilled nursing, you did aquatic therapy, and then you also did outpatient. So you kind of have, or inpatient, I'm sorry. So you have such a variety of a background and settings. And I think that really contributes to a way that you became CI of the year. Can you kind of talk about um, steps that you took and what, what do you think makes you a good CI here? So I think, a good CI should be, um, in the same way, a good student. You should be open to anything. So I often joke with the students that I have, and I always tell them, I'm not God's gift to physical therapy. If you've got a better way to do it, if you've got a better idea, I want to hear it. You know, this is, it's, it's collaborative. You know, I look to my peers um, for advice too. You know, whether, hey, like, why, why isn't this patient progressing? Why, what should I be doing differently? I, I think students should challenge the therapist. That's why I like taking students is you guys have a much different approach to it. You know, I've done it for nine, 10 years. And, you know, I think sometimes we get a little set in our ways. And I'm like, oh, I always do it this way. And then the students are like, well, why don't you do it this way? And I'll have to stop and think, why don't I do it this way? Maybe it is a better way. Maybe it's better for this patient. So I am pretty open and direct in my feedback with students. And I want students to be just as open and direct with me. 
I don't want them to shirk away from something if they think it's a good idea or if they think we should be doing something differently. I, I want to hear it. Um, I, I want the students to question me. So I think a, a good CI isn't dictating how something goes or isn't dictating how the clinical goes. I think they're more receptive and it's kind of a back and forth between the, the CI and the student that really makes that a learning process on both ends. I learn just as much from students as I hope they learn from me. So I think collaboration is the biggest thing that, that makes a good clinical instructor. What got you interested in the first place in, into doing it? Um, I had a lot of good CIs. Um, I was, I was very, very fortunate. Um, my, my first clinical rotation, um, my CI was very good, but the one thing that um, I wish I'd had was a little more autonomy. So it was one PT and there was a, a full-time PTA there. So, you know, he owned the practice and um, I get it, you know, it's his practice, it's his, his liability, his livelihood. Um, but I feel like I, I never really kind of got the opportunity to you know, have that collaboration to have that, like, Hey, could we try this way? Hey, could we try that way? It, it was kind of just a, <clears throat> excuse me, a little more set in stone that this was how we did it. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, my, um, my second rotation was the exact opposite. Um, my CI just threw me into it and she said, go for it. And I'm like, uh, what do you mean? She's like, it's an evaluation, just do it. And I was like, okay. And it, you know, I probably fumbled my way through it. And afterwards, you know, she was nice in her feedback to me, but she was like, well, you got, you know, we got some room for improvement. And I think the most helpful piece to that was, you know, she gave me the opportunity to make a mistake and to learn from it. You know, she didn't interrupt me the whole time. She didn't, you know, correct every little thing that I said or did or, you know, micromanage how it happened. And that learning process was so much more helpful. And, you know, she, she really did a good job in kind of just throwing me into it and, and getting me to do what I needed to do. So I think she kind of really inspired me to like, you know what, when I have the opportunity, I, I want to take students. And Andrew, how long were you working in the profession before you decided to become a clinical instructor? Probably about a year and a half, two years. So um, it's probably closer to the two year mark because um, I was in the profession for about a year before I took my first PRN job. Um, and I felt like I was probably still a little too fresh out of school and trying to get you know my feet wet, understand the profession from, you know, you go from unintentionally probably being shielded from some of what goes on as a student to suddenly like, oh, I never did this as a student. Well, yeah, because you were a student. So you never got the opportunity to. I try to expose students to as much as I can, but there are still things that you just won't get to experience until you've actually been in it. So after I took my first PRN job, and I think I was way more comfortable with, you know, being able to work in this setting, in that setting, in, in, just day-to-day -day stuff that I was like, yeah, sure, now's, now's probably a good time. And I think in that, since that time, maybe four, 14 or 15 students I've had, 
um, the bulk of which have been PT students, but I've taken, I think, three PTA students as well, or four PTA students. So um, I, I would encourage, you know, new grads, take some time. You've got a lot to learn that you don't even know that you have to learn yet. And then, you know, when you're comfortable with it and you feel like it, I, I think every clinician should take students just for the sheer sake of, again, it's a two-way learning street. It's not just you imparting, you know, what you think is knowledge on them. I mean, students have just as much to teach you as you have to teach them. Yeah, I love that kind of mantra of a two-way street. Um, one of my favorite things about my first CI is that he put me in uncomfortable situations, but it was just the right amount of discomfort. It wasn't all at once. He wasn't throwing me in the deep end, but he wasn't holding my hand. He wasn't coddling me through my clinical experience. And I think that was so essential for me, uh, at least, and really helped my learning. Um, same thing goes for when we have to do practicals in school. I was so uncomfortable for that. But looking, looking back on it, that was one of the greatest learning experiences I could have had. It was so applicable to what we were going to do in the summer or, you know, do for our rotations. And it was so beneficial to just live in that slight world of discomfort. So I really agree. I never, I never want to put a student in an unsafe um, situation. So where, you know, something could happen with them or to the patient. So, you know, if a patient's non-weight bearing and, you know, a student's like, oh, let's, let's do a hop test or let's do, eh, maybe I'll, I'm going to interrupt here and just very politely steer away from that. But at the end of the day, I, I really do. I try not to interrupt. I try not to micromanage um, my, my thought. And I say this to every student, it's trial by fire. You got to get in. Um, at the end of the day, I think the goal of the CI is to develop independent clinicians, not mini-me's. So I, I don't care if students go through the exam in the same way that I would. I don't care if they ask the subjective in the same sequence or manner that I would. If you're getting the information and if you're doing it efficiently, then that's, that's the ultimate goal. That's, that's what you want. Um, I, I try to make the students, so you brought up the practicals. Um, something I, I probably stole from Gannon over this is I make every student every eval, every single time. So every one of my students knows when the eval is done, the first thing they have to do, I call it a three, three, three. Tell me three things you did good, three things you could do better, and three things you'll do next time. And every student always misinterprets that. And they say, oh, three things I did bad. I didn't say bad, three things you can do better. So there's always room for improvement. And I have found by making students do that, that I just subconsciously do that now. I'm like, oh yeah, that was a good, that was a good test. Like I, I remember that. And then there's other times a patient will walk out and I'm like, oh my gosh, why didn't I look at this? Well, there's something for next time. There's one of my things for next time. And students utterly hate it. They absolutely hate doing it. And by the end of the rotation, every single student I've ever had, that's like, that was the most annoying thing I had to do. And it was the most helpful. So giving students that level of discomfort and making them work their way through the process as opposed to dictating that process and making them look back and evaluating what could I have done differently? What, what should I have done? What did I do good? Um, I think that builds a lot of confidence and it, it really forces you to, you know, become more independent in terms of, you know, just your, your approach to things. 
I really like the three, 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 because there's always things that were like, oh man, maybe that wasn't the best intervention I could have done. But I think it's also important to acknowledge, I think that was a good tested measure that I did. I think that was appropriate or it's good to look back and justify why we're doing things and making sure that everything we're doing um, is backed up by evidence. So I really like that. And I think that we can continue to carry that on with our next rotations. Um, that's a really good piece of advice as a student going into a new one or vice versa. Um, are there any other things that you like to do with your students that just make you stand out as a, a clinical instructor? I wanna give them um, the opportunity to experience as much as they can. So, um, you know, this time of year, you the third years, you guys are going out on CP3 and that eight weeks flies by and you're trying to cram as much as you can into eight weeks. So, you know, when, when it's appropriate, I will have students, we also have um, occupational therapy and speech therapy. So some of the um, uh, patients that we have re that receive all three disciplines, um, you know, they'll see PT at eight, OT at nine, speech at 10, follow them, you evaluated them, Find out what OT is doing with them. Find out what speech is doing with them. Um, if there's something that you want to see, um, I am not a pediatric physical therapist. Um, I have two kids, and if if they ever needed any kind of intervention, it's not an area that I specialize in. It's not an area that I'm comfortable necessarily treating, short of the orthopedic realm. So I would find an orthopedic, or I would find a pediatric physical therapist. So if pediatrics is something that you're interested in. Unfortunately, you're not going to see it on my caseload, but there are fantastic um, pediatric clinicians that I work with. Go ahead, go, um, you know, if we've got a little bit of downtime or if uh, there's a, a good patient coming in, go ahead and spend the time with that therapist if that's something you might be interested in. Um, I have a very good relationship with um, the orthopedic surgeons that work for our hospital as well. So I think it's helpful. Observe the surgery, you know these patients come out of the OR and they're in tons of pain, they're, they're immobile, watch the surgery and you'll realize why. Um, I had a really cool experience when I was a student um, at ACMC, where I'm currently working, uh, I got to observe the patient's total knee replacement. And then the next day, I evaluated that same patient in the hospital. And then we had a skilled nursing unit at the time. Then I evaluated them again, two weeks later, or no, probably like two days later, yeah, two days later, um, when they were on the skilled nursing unit. So now I've seen them progress. I saw the surgery. I saw them progress for, you know, a couple of days in the inpatient setting. Now they're on the skilled nursing unit. So now I'm evaluating them again. And now they've got another couple of weeks on that unit. And then they were discharged. And lo and behold, the last week that I was an outpatient, who did I get to evaluate? Again, I got to see this patient now in an outpatient setting. So I saw the surgery saw them post-op day one, saw them on the skilled nursing unit, and then evaluated them for the fourth time or the third time in the outpatient setting. So I got to see that progression with one single patient. So that really kind of hammers home, you know, what you see, you, you tend to see them in, in pieces and you're trying to put it all together. I got to see this for one person. Um, so giving students these opportunities to experience different things, um, we do some stuff in local high schools and I'll, if I have the opportunity, I'll bring students along with me for it. These community outreaches and, and stuff like that. They're, they're sides of the profession that you don't normally 
get to see as a student because we think of, you know, you're in clinic, you should be seeing, you know, as many evals as you can in the day and, and following these patients treatment wise and stuff like that. But there's a whole nother side to it that, you know, you should get to see. And as long as clinics going good and as long as students are being successful, I think they should have every opportunity to experience the profession in all of its realms, not just evaluating and treating patients. There's a whole side to this profession that, you know, you, you don't get to see as a student. Andrew, I wanted to know if you had any advice for students. Um, I think, you know, there's a sense of anxiousness that comes to a student whenever they first begin their rotation, um, just because, you know, we're immersed with so many new things, you know, new people, new setting. Um, and that anxiousness can sometimes carry throughout the rotation. Am I doing good? Do they like me? Um, because I think the student mind, it thinks differently than a clinical mind. Um, so how do you think that students should bridge that gap between, I need to think of this less academically and more real life application clinically? So, um, you know, you guys asked me the question about what makes a good CI and I said, being open. And I think that applies to students as well. Um, I've told students the same thing. Your, your CI is not necessarily your friend. You're not buddies. You're, you're probably not, you shouldn't be going to the bar with them after work or anything like that. Um, because there is, there's still a, a CI student relationship and, you know, there's probably lines that, you know, you obviously don't want to cross, but you can still be open with them. So you can still be friendly. You can still joke around within, you know, realm of appropriateness and professionalism. But if, if that anxiousness carries over, I, I think a lot of times it's that students aren't willing to open up to the CI and say, hey, look, this is what I need. So like I said, it's a two-way street. So I've, I, to this date, I've not had a student fail, but I've had several come very close. Um, and one recent one that comes to mind, this student wasn't doing very well. And I'm, I'm trying all these different things. I'm trying these, these you know, different approaches and things. But this student never really opened up to me about what they needed. You know, I, I would ask, like, what, what do you want from me? What do you know? Ah, no, I, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. And finally, it kind of reached a tipping point where, look, we're, you might not be successful here. Like, what, what needs to happen? And after that occurred, I think it was kind of this aha moment for the student. And they, they opened up and they said, look, this, this is what, and it was something that I was doing. They were just like, I need some time to process this. I can't just like rapid fire go into this. This, this line of questioning and this, what would we do differently? I said, okay. And they just looked at me like, what do you mean? Okay. I was like, that's what you need. That's what you need. Like take a few minutes after get, you know, get whatever you need, get your head together, you know, think about it outside of that immediate moment. And, you know, then we'll talk about it. And that worked phenomenally. And the student was ultimately successful. You have to be open with the CI. If there's Something that the CI is doing or not doing, you know, can't read your mind. Tell me, am I, you know, do you want me to be more hands-on? Do you want me to interrupt you? Do you want me to direct it more? Or do you want me to sit there, shut up and let you do your thing? You know, there's, every student is different and so is every CI. And there has to be a mutual ground there that, that you find with that CI or to your point, that anxiousness and that you know, that disconnect will carry through to the rotation. So I think there's got to be an openness on both sides of that from, from the student who says, this is what I need 
to the CI who's willing to provide it and you know change a little bit of how they do their day-to-day -day stuff. I really liked that advice because it, as students, we shouldn't be afraid to say, hey, I think I'm a hands-on learner. I think I learned the best from actually doing the evaluations or even being the student that says, I really learn best by observing. So if I can see you do this first and then I can do it after, um, we shouldn't be afraid to do that and then also ask for help when it's needed. So I really appreciate that coming from a CI to a student because going forward, we can just apply that in the future and mm -hmm. not be afraid to say, hey, I think this is how I learn best and can we try this approach? So that's reaffirming to hear. Um, I'm sure you've learned all of this as your time as a CI and also as a student being in your rotations. I know you had a really interesting rotation in Alaska, actually. Do you want to talk mm -hmm. about that a little bit? Um, so I, 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 everybody's asked me, how'd you end up here? And I was like, well, Julie Hartman, who was the, um, you know, the, the clinical coordinator at the time, sent out an email and said, hey, we have a clinical placement up here if anyone's interested. And I was like, yeah, why not? Um, and I had to kind of apply to it actually. So I had to send, you had to send a copy of my resume, my prior um, clinical rotations, because they do not um, take students for a first or second placement. Um, it was a neuro clinic and um, the, the learning curve was steep. I'll get to that in a second, but um, they wanted to know, why do you want to come here? And I think it's the most time I've ever spent on 11 sentences. I probably agonized over those, like, why do I want to come here? How did, uh, does this sound right? Does that sound right? Um, and I'll never forget, you know, I, I sent it off and never heard anything, never heard anything. And then months later, I'm finishing up a, a home health practical. Um, and I thought I did pretty well on it. And uh, Julie was actually the patient at the time. And she goes, so do you want some good news? And I was like, oh, I passed. And she goes, oh, yeah. She's like, you did great. We'll get to that in a second. She's like, but you're going to Alaska. And I'd, I'd forgotten all about it. I'm like, for what? She's like, well, we'll see before. I was like, oh my God, like I forgot all about this. So um, the clinic was a neuro clinic. And um, what they saw was all brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, strokes, um, vestibular patients. And it was uh, day one, I contemplated just getting back on the plane and coming home because I saw a patient with ataxia. She was the very first patient that I saw. And my CI goes, so what would you do with her? And I didn't have an answer. I was like, I have no idea. I was like, I, I, oh my God, like, I have no idea. Like right now it was, it was the most profound ataxia I'd ever seen. And I was just like, I, I don't know. Then the second patient that I saw, this did not go any better. So um, it's a gentleman who had a stroke. He had um, uh, like a flexion contracture and uh, he, um, she goes, what would you do with this guy? And I'm like, this is not going to go well. And um, I was like, I, I'm not even going to take a stab at it. And she goes, well, why don't we go climb to the third floor and there's a vertical ladder and then we'll go to the roof. I was like, it's a good one. And that's exactly what we did. We climbed up three flights of stairs and there was a 10 foot vertical ladder to the roof that she had somehow you know, strapped a harness to so that he, obviously if he let go, he wouldn't fall. And I was like, I am in over my head because I 
that wouldn't have cracked the top 1000 things that I thought we would have done with this guy, but he was a pilot and he needed to be able to climb up into the plane. I'm like, here I am thinking like, I have no idea what this guy can do. And you're telling me we're gonna go climb a 10 foot vertical ladder after walking up three flights of stairs. And we did. And I think that's kind of gave me the appre appreciation for, we gotta push these people. Like I'm thinking like, yeah, let's uh, sit in a chair and do some long arc quads maybe. And then I'm like, no, let's, let's go climb a vertical ladder. Like, let's, let's go, let's go do something hard. Like, you know, and it was a steep, steep learning curve where I, I had to kind of reassess what I thought these people could do and really learn to push them. So it was, it was a very, very challenging rotation. It was also, um, everybody always asked me, was it light or dark? Well, I got up there in January and they had already started gaining time, but it was pitch black until 11 o'clock in the morning. And by 11 o'clock in the morning, you could just start to see a little ray of sunshine coming over the horizon. I mean, like a little ray of sunshine and it would come up just enough and then pitch black by three o'clock in the afternoon. So I would, you know, I'd start to see sunlight and I'd be like, oh man, I'm hungry. It's almost lunchtime. And then it was pitch black by three o'clock. And I'm like, oh, the day's got to be almost over. And I'm like, nope, still got another three hours. It was, it was weird to get used to, but I got a lot of good studying in while I was there. I, I learned more in that CP4 than, you know, I, I probably learned in the other three rotations just from how much I had to do to be proficient at it. Um, it was an experience to say the least. And, and I encourage every student, do something, you know, again, out of your comfort zone. Here I am getting on a plane going 4,000 miles away. I don't know if you could go that extreme, but do something you're not comfortable with. Go to a setting that you're not comfortable with or somewhere that you don't want to be. You know, you, you got to challenge yourself just as much as the patients. Did you feel like by the end of that last rotation that you had actually mastered it, like considering the, the path that you took? So mastering it might not be the right word. I was successful in the, the clinical. I passed it. Um, and I remember having kind of a heart to heart with my CI after. And she said, you know, she's like, you, you passed. She's like, you know, I, I don't think you were in danger of failing. She said, but this is why we don't take students for CP1, for CP2. She's like, these are not entry level patients. She's like, maybe if you work in a small town and you're the only PT that's there, you're going to end up seeing them. She said, but this, this is not that. She said, we don't even consider hiring new grads. She said, this is not, uh, this is not an entry level job. And I see why, like it was, it was challenging. So to say I mastered it, maybe, maybe not the right way to look at it, but I was successful in the clinical and ironically, um, neuro, uh, was the only practical I, I think I ever really failed. And it's also the thing that I'm probably the most proficient at now. I see almost all of our patients with strokes. I see all of our vestibular patients. Um, I see all of our wheelchair evaluations. Um, those were all skills that I, I took away from CP4. So when I came to my current job, um, I had a level of proficiency at that stuff that I think that clinic at the time didn't really have because again, smaller area, they. They don't really see as much of it. And now, you know, here I am after what, four or 12 weeks of, of doing this nonstop day in and day out. So I became very good at it. And I, I think, you know, I probably mastered it now, but 
Um, in that moment, uh, probably not. I was just ready to get on the plane and come home at that point. So Andrew, you had your rotation in Alaska, um, but currently you also practice in Pennsylvania and mm -hmm. Ohio. So mm -hmm. what discrepancies do you see between different states and how they practice? Um, so I've actually also been licensed in Virginia as well, although I've never actually practiced down there. That I don't remember why exactly I needed that license, probably something related to the boards when I took them. But um, I think PTAs have a level of autonomy in Ohio that they don't in PA. Um, I've heard PTAs describe themselves in PA as glorified rehab techs. Um, and as unfortunate as it is, it's not exactly a false statement. Um, PTAs in Ohio have um, probably a lot more abilities, a lot more autonomy in, in terms of delivering care, certain treatments that they're allowed to do there versus um, PA. Um, as far as like PT goes, there's not a huge difference. Um, I do a little bit of dry needling in our clinic as well. And um, since I work predominantly inpatient in PA, um, I, I'm pretty sure, and, and you guys might know this, so correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think PTs can't do it in PA. I just think there's no board decision on whether they should or shouldn't. Whereas in Ohio, it is absolutely within the scope of practice to do it. So, you know, Ohio's like, yeah, go for it. And PA is like, eh, sure, go for it if you want to, but we don't really want to take a position on it yet. Um, so there's not a huge discrepancy uh, there, but I think insurance is a big difference. That's probably the, the biggest um, piece that I see difference-wise is um, not just reimbursements, but different payers, different providers, whether they're you know, Medicaid's a state-run program. So what we see in PA for Medicaid patients versus what I see in Ohio for them, um, there is, there's a, a vast discrepancy on how many visits they're allowed, how frequently I can see them, how many units I'm allowed to bill. Um, that's probably the biggest discrepancy among that. Obviously, your, your federal payers like Medicaid, the VA, not as big of a difference there because they're, you know, federal programs, but the, the state-run programs, hugely different. So with your background in different settings and seeing all these different types of patient populations and working between two states, could you give us a clinical pearl or what's one of the most interesting things that you've come across in all of your time as a PT? Oh boy, that's a good question. Um, hmm, what's the most... I actually think um, it, it goes back to my uh, time in Alaska. I wasn't even a PT at that point. Um, I think the the pearl is push patients. You don't know unless you ask them to do it. So you can't make an assumption that you know these patients can or can't do something. And I think I went into that rotation thinking like, oh yeah, they can't. This guy can't climb a vertical ladder like. And he does it day one and blows me away. So um, again, going back to that openness, being open to trying things with, with patients, that's probably the biggest thing. Push them, have them try to do it. See if they can. If they can't, figure out why they can't. 
Um, I, I think that's probably the, the thing that I, that's still probably to this day gets me is I'll look at, you know, I, I think sometimes we're maybe a little biased and I'll look at someone like, oh, you're, you know, 60, 70, 80 years old, maybe, or, or maybe you've had this injury and you can't do this. And then I ask them to do it. And I'm like, oh man, I couldn't have done it that well, you know? And I think we just always have to kind of separate that bias of thinking that they can't and, and really focusing on, they can do this. We just have to figure out how and why. So we definitely need a clinical rotation in Alaska. Is what I mean, if you guys get the opportunity, I would, I would encourage it. Um, I mean, that being said, I went to Alaska in January. I probably would have rather gone to Hawaii in January, but um, it was a, it was an experience. It really was. And I, I think, you know, you, you really do have to take yourself out of that comfort zone. Like I said, I, I was ready to just tuck tail and get on a plane and go home and be like, nope, I'm done. And, you know, I probably limped through those first couple of weeks, probably even longer than that, but it, it really gave me a perspective and an appreciation for, you know, that, that whole clinical process of that's why you're doing this. You can learn about it all you want in a textbook and you can, you can go through practicals and you can go through patient cases and examples, but you know, your, your two patients who both had a, a middle cerebral artery stroke are going to present night and day. You know, they're, they're not going to present the same. They're not going to have the same deficits. They're not going to have the same limitations. They're not going to have the same goals. So, um, you know, you, you really do need to get out of that comfort zone. And, you know, I think, uh, I think Sean said it, put yourself in an uncomfortable position. You know, that's the whole reason you're on clinic limp through it and, and try to, you know, do your best at it. And then, you know, turn around and ask the CI, like, what can I do better? What, what, what can I do differently? What's your advice for me? Um, so yeah, maybe you don't have to go to Alaska to do that, but go, go somewhere that you don't want to, or some setting that you don't think you'll like, because you might turn around and find out, wow, I really love this setting. This is awesome. I like it here. And you might've thought, no, nah, I don't ever want to do this. And, you know, until you do it, you won't have that perspective on it. Andrew, you have given us a ton of good perspectives and stories and all these things that we can learn from. I think our last question for you is going back a couple of years, what would you give uh, as advice to your PT school self? Oh boy. Like PT school, Andrew, was a while ago, but um, <laughs> enjoy it. That's it. Enjoy the time. In, enjoy the, the company. Enjoy your, your class. Um, you know, I, I don't know how old most of you are, but I'm guessing you're probably right around the same age that I was there. If you think about it, by the time you're done with grad school, you'll spend six, seven years in college. At that point, it's about a third of your life, right? You just spent a third of your current existence doing this. So have fun with it, you know, spend time enjoying yourself, enjoying your classmates, um, you know, just ex the whole experience itself. I think it, you need to step away from, from time to time and stop thinking about school, stop thinking about the next practical, stop thinking about the boards. Um, just enjoy the ride. You know, I, I know, 
grad school me probably felt differently at the time because everything culminates in you know being successful in your clinical rotations and then ultimately passing the boards so it's hard to think past you know cp1 cp2 cp3 cp4 the boards it's hard to think past that but i think you just need to take time away from school from the boards and just enjoy it because it it goes fast you know i look back now and i think god that was nine, 10 years ago. And I think to myself, where did, you know, where did that time go? So my advice, enjoy it while you can. Andrew, thank you for sharing that wisdom and all of your advice with us today. I think we've learned a lot and I think you made me a little bit more eager for my rotations coming up. I know they'll be different than Alaska, but we're still excited for what we have in the future. Um, thank you for giving us all of this knowledge coming from CI of 2021, CI of the year. Um, thank you so much for having or coming on today and speaking. Well, thank you guys for having me. Uh, best of luck in you know your upcoming rotations. Best of luck on the boards. If you guys ever have any questions or, or need a vote of confidence, don't hesitate. Feel free. Reach out. Let me know. Thanks for joining us today. Please tune in next time for more Tales from the Plinth.